0: Welcome to Episode 73 of the 75 Greatest Marvels Unofficial Countdown Podcast, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This week's co-host is Mark Adams, who many of you will know from his podcast that we'll get to in a moment. He's joined me this week as we're counting down the 75 Greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st,
1: 2016. Welcome aboard, Mark. Thank you very much, Blaine. It's great to be here. Great to talk about comics. Wonderful thing to talk about. It is, and thanks for joining us. So
0: No problem. All right, so before we get into it, we have a habit of missing the promo spots because we get distracted. So why don't you tell the listeners where else they can find you?
1: You can find my... I've got three podcasts. One is Mark Smith vs. Evolutionary War, which is a 12-issue limited podcast examining the 1988 Marvel annuals with the banner of the Evolutionary War. The current one is Mark's Mess vs. Atlantis Attacks. And yes, it's another 15-issue limited podcast examining the 1989 Marvel annuals with the banner of Atlantis Attacks. And those, I'm joined with my two young, very enthusiastic daughters chipping in their thoughts whenever. But also, I do a family podcast, which is John Adams' Letters from the Front, which is a family history podcast where my brothers and myself, we podcast the letters my grandfather sent home to his mother during the World War One, and uh, ones that he posted from the Western Front. All these podcasts can be found in one place, marksmesspodcasts.blogspot.co.uk. So if you go along there or you use a decent search engine, you should be able to find at least one of them somewhere.
0: Yeah, and I actually subscribe through iTunes.
1: iTunes is good as well.
0: Which is one of the three major places to get a hold of this one, so I suspect a lot of listeners know how to find that. Daddy, what did you do when Atlantis attacked?
1: I donned my iron armor to fight with Namor the submariner.
0: That was Iron Man. What did you do when Atlantis attacked?
1: I gathered a group of heroes to fight against the serpent crime with my mighty shield held high. That's Captain America. Try again. I spun a web any size. Spider Man uh i punished the drug dealers
0: i have no idea but are you just doing another podcast
1: another podcast yes mark's mess versus atlantis attacks a 15-part limited podcast series examining the marvel annuals that have the banner heading of atlantis attacks a story, a story joining the Marvel heroes against the Serpent Crown. Find it at marksmesspodcast.blogspot.co.uk, on Twitter at marksmesspodcast, and on iTunes by searching Mess.
0: This week we are discussing story number 73 in this Countdown podcast, which is New Mutants number 98. This is the first volume of New Mutants. It was plotted by Rob Liefeld, with scripts by Fabian Nicieza, penciled and inked by Rob Liefeld. Colorist was Steve Bucciolato, or Bucilato, Think Bucciolato. if I apologize if I mispronounced his name, I've only ever seen it in print. Letters by Joe Rosen. This was edited by Bob Harris, while Tom DeFalco was editor-in-chief. The cover date is February 1991, and as far as we could tell from Mike's Amazing World of Comics, who's usually pretty good about this sort of thing, it was published on December 11th,
1: 1990. Mm. So not much of a a lead time between publication and, uh, and cover date?
0: Yeah, this was actually just a few months after Marvel got that sort of caught up and back in sync. Mm-hmm. So for a while there, there's about a six month gap. Now this is down to the current two to three month gap that it is. So, you know, things published in November have the January cover date, published in December have the February cover date. Um, earlier that year, Marvel had actually done, they were still publishing monthly, but they'd gone with cover dates of early October, late October, early November, late mm-hmm. November, just to close that gap by two ah, months.
1: That's why they did that. Right.
0: Yeah. Because at the time, yeah, the, the comic book cover date. Was intended to be like the best before date on a milk, right? (laughs) That's not – this is when that book is published. It's this is how long that should sit on the shelf after which retailers can return it for refunds, which is why if you go back to the 60s, some of the biggest selling titles, their cover dates are out of sync with the rest. Mm -hmm. So you'll see you know, Justice League's cover dates were not lined up with Superman or Action's cover dates in terms of publication month and same with Avengers and X-Men. And some of that was just setting up that best before date, so the highest-selling titles had more time on the shelves so that they were less likely to be returned.
1: Oh, wow. Very interesting. Good. All right. So might as well get into the significance of this issue. The huge significance is one of the men standing in the cover, Deadpool, one of the most popular characters at the moment, and this was his first introduction, as it says in the cover, introducing the lethal Deadpool, but also... The mysterious Gideon and the dynamic Domino, introducing three characters in the one comic,
0: mm-hmm.
1: doesn't give each car doesn't give the characters very much time to develop themselves. But uh, definitely an introduction to Deadpool.
0: Yeah, certainly. I've got if we go through the rough count. So Gideon gets nine pages in the issue. Deadpool appears on seven, and Domino appears on three.
1: mm Mm-hmm. And for a lot of those issues, or a lot of those pages, there's not a lot of character work. No, that is quite an understatement. You get the idea that Gideon can uh, fight and scheme. Mm -hmm. You get the idea that Deadpool can carry swords and not use them and use other things and fight. And you get the idea that Domino can fight. So, definitely an action issue. Very much so. And actually a
0: bit of a lie on the cover. This is New Mutants 98. This original run wrapped up at the end of this story arc, the end of the beginning. Yes. Or the beginning of the end, right? This starts in issue 98, wraps up in 100, and the book was relaunched as X-Force with Mm -hmm. X-Force number one following that. By the time we get to X-Force 11, we learn that the Domino we see here is not actually
1: Domino, but the shapeshifter copycat who had taken Domino's place. And that was one of the most confusing things about Domino. I could never wrap my head around it. When was this planned from the beginning? Nah. Couldn't see it. Yeah, it's
0: it's hard to say. I I haven't read a lot from this era, but from what I've read of the descriptions, it sounds almost like they created the character to go in one direction, said, no, 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 we have a better idea, but we can't do that with what we've got. I know, it's not really her. <sighs> Throw away the original plan that was going in direction A, and introduce the character in direction B that you decided you wanted
1: mm, after the fact. Yes, and Gideon was a bit of a damp squid, because he didn't go very far, and he ended up getting killed. He was a race of Eternals, sort of Highlander style. And he was after uh, Sunspot to become uh, another Eternal, which, again, was just a dumb squid. Uh, Deadpool came back the next time he came back was in X-Factor. No, X-Force. Uh, so and he sort of got better from there. Uh, and it was actually uh, Fabian who wrote him uh, in his own series. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then he got another four-issue miniseries written by Mark mm-hmm. Wade. Which is around the time they started making him funny.
1: Yes. Here he's he's a
0: bit of a blabbermouth, but he's not the sarcastic wisecracker that he is mm-hmm. known as today. He is not the same character.
1: No, and to tell you the truth, this is one of the only two places I've read Deadpool, in the, uh, apart from the past 10 years. Because he was a character after this issue, it was no, of no interest to me. And I couldn't uh, couldn't be bothered with, bothered with him. It's just another copy of uh, Thug.
0: Yeah. Yeah, See, for me, I wasn't reading these issues at the time of release. Actually, my first exposure to Deadpool was with uh, Cable and Deadpool issue 30, which was the Civil War tie-in. Oh, wow. Which I actually quite loved. That was extremely well-written, I found. Uh, So I went through Cable and Deadpool and started collecting Deadpool classics. And it was in Deadpool classic volume one that I read this particular issue for the first time. Mm-hmm. And reading those Deadpool classics, you see the evolution where they decide to make him funny. Because originally, this Deadpool, Wade Wilson, was very much in the comic book tradition of stealing from other companies. Somewhat of a pastiche of Slade Wilson, you know, Dex- Deathstroke the
1: Terminator from the Teen Titans era.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that missed me by at the time. It was only years later I saw the connection. I read this... Off the shelf at the time, I was reading, uh, I had collected New Mutants up to maybe 10 issues before this, and I was getting a wee bit wary of it. But then the, was it the Extinction Agenda came, where the X-Books tied in with a Genosha, Genosha storyline, and the New Mutants were part of that. So I read that, and this was the next issue after it, the very first issue that uh, lifefield had complete control over the comic. And especially coming up to the last 100th issue, issue, I thought I'll collect these last three. It's bound to be good. Yeah.
0: Yeah, this is is very much, you you don't need to read the cover date to be able to read this issue and know it's early 90s. (laughs) It's not as 90s, we shall say, as the comics that come, you know, five or six years later. Mm -hmm. But the earmarks are here. So
1: yes, pockets and swords and guns and, oh,
0: yeah. And as Mark just said, a lot more creative control handed over to the artists. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not like, you know, a Mark Wade collaboration these days where you pick up the latest issue of Deadpool or of Daredevil and it's storytellers, Mark Wade and Chris Somni, mm-hmm. because it really is a collaboration where they hammer out plots together. Wade does scripts. Somni does the art. This is more, you know, Liefeld does the plot on his own mm-hmm. and Nisieza is just scripting it and you could see the difference because reading this honestly it, it leaves me rather flat uh, compare it to Fabian Nicieza's work on New Warriors just around the corner from this mm-hmm. and that I was a huge fan of and still am a big fan that holds up quite well
1: and even when lifefield left X-Force and, um, and Fabian took over there was a huge difference in the comic and that's what brought me back to X-Force for a while
0: Yeah. Fabian Nicieza, he's the real deal. I quite enjoy everything I've read by him. He's one of those writers that I I want to track down.
1: Yes. I went through some of the things he has written. New Warriors, Alpha Flight, Avengers, a lot of Cable, a lot of Deadpool, uh, even the X-Men, the adjective X-Men 12 to 45. So big, long runs Mm -hmm. and consistent runs. So he's a good writer.
0: He is, yeah. I think with New Warriors, the original run of that series lasted for 75 issues and four annuals. Yes. And I believe he did the first three annuals,
1: if not all four, and 50-some of the 75 issues. 53 of them. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Now, he was... uh, Now, we know that the life field came in quite young to this, and this was one of his first main jobs. Uh, Before this, he'd done a wee bit of work, but in the past... He only came in the past couple of years uh, from 91. Uh, I think Fabian was the same. He was a young fella coming in. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, so this would w- would have been one of his first major jobs Yeah, around this area. Yeah, so, Yeah, they're both just breaking in. That mm-hmm. was actually
0: pretty common in the ex office at the time. Uh, if you actually listen to Jeff Loeb's interviews on Word Balloon, the, the Loeb reports, there's a story he's told a couple of times where, you know, when he first got working in comics, he got working in the X books and it was a few years after this, but the, the X office had been the same for a while where they asked him a few yes or no questions before offering the position. It was one, are you reading the X books? And yes, he was two, you know, are you interested in writing one of the X books? Yes, I am great. Three, have you heard anything about the office politics and what's going on at Marvel with the X books? He said, no, the answer was fantastic. You're hired. <laughs> so, and some of that is starting here i mean Leifeld he definitely has his detractors both as a human yes. being and as an artist mm-hmm. looking at the art itself it it's certainly not perfect the people who point out flaws are generally correct in their analysis saying this element is a flaw mm-hmm. i personally think it's a bit exaggerated i think because his his art style was very distinct he was on everything in the 90s because the stuff he was on sold very well. Yeah. I mean, it, his figures are imperfect, but it's – yeah, he's got problems with feet like John Byrne has problems drying more than one female face. <laughs> 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 you know, they, they both have areas of, that could be improved. I think a lot of what, what happens with Liefeld is that many comics readers do not have fond memories of what was happening in the industry in the 90s and Liefeld's style – was so influential over that era. You look at his work and you think of the 90s. Yes. I think that's a big piece of it. I also think he, in some cases, he was given a little too much creative control because he can outline good scripts, but he should not have complete control over the plot. No. It's like George Lucas. It works best when you hand your outline to someone else and let them take care of it.
1: also think, as an artist, if he had someone who would say to him, no, that's wrong, but this is right, I, I showed the comic to an artist friend of mine who knows nothing about comics, and she was quite taken by the art. She loved the art, uh, the way it was centred, the way the action was. And the thing she pointed out was the amount of times it breaks out of the, the border of the panel. Mm-hmm. And that got me looking at them. I mean, if you look at some of the bits where Cable's fighting, uh, there there's a bit where he's in the arms of this robot, and it's sort of in front of the other two panels, and it gives depth. the art and you know i didn't realize that until i started reading it but then there are other bits where he does this and it doesn't work because the character who's being taken out of the panel should be at the back of the panel and not at the front uh just he probably just needed somebody to say no that's not the character you do that with over here here's a character who should be more towards the the reader than you are so I, i i don't like his art but I understand where the goodness of his art is. I understand totally where the negative is <laughs> of... I mean, really, um, a lot of pockets. Just a lot of pockets. Yeah. But you know, e- even you're talking about John Byrne and female faces, when, you, when uh, Cable and Domino are looking at old New Mutant members, each of the female faces looks the same. A slightly different colour, a slightly different hairstyle, but the shape and features are exactly the same. And uh, it's just one of those wee things that I could have changed to make it slightly better.
0: Yeah, there, there's a few things that could be tweaked here. He is. I, I find that Liefeld is one of those artists that, to me, he actually is a very capable visual storyteller. But when it comes to the way he lays out the details and the way he forms the figures, you know, he can pose them correctly, but as mm-hmm. you said, heavy into pockets. It's not. It's not even con- terribly consistent. Like like a lot of women. When you look at their faces from the same viewing angle, as we have in the headshots uh, on that page we're talking about, you see a lot of similarities, but then they turn their head to the left. It doesn't look like the same woman anymore. <laughs> right. They're Absolutely. Yeah. So he is one of the guys where, you know, if he had, you know, instead of being given complete control where he could plot pencil and ink, mm-hmm. if he could do outlines and layouts, and then somebody else does the breakdowns, the finishes, and the scripts, you could produce a pretty fantastic comic out of that, right? If he says, pose this guy here, pose this guy this way, put, you know, set up your
1: panels like this. Yeah, because his action sequences are great, are very good, which is good, because that's about 22 out of 24 pages here. (laughs) But, I mean, uh, was that down to editorial control? Was that down to the bosses higher up saying, no, this guy sells, give him more rope? Um, A lot of
0: the era in the 90s, what was happening is that the artists... The production companies found they didn't have to pay the artists quite as much because they could sell the original art pieces. Mm. And there started to be a booming market for the original art. Hence
1: the amount of splash panels.
0: Yeah, the splash pages, the action sequences, something where you could take an isolated page and it would still look great and people would want just that one page. Mm -hmm. So trying to pack a lot of action in. Uh, That's actually ultimately what led to Peter David leaving the Hulk. At one point, he had handed in a script for a one-issue fill-in off to an artist, the artist drew it as three issues, breaking the story structure and doing the, the issue breaks in the wrong spots mm-hmm. and completely threw off David's schedule for how he was going to line up with these mandatory crossovers and just totally screwed him over. And you know, when Peter and David went to, ori- to editorial to complain, they said, no, the artists are in control.
1: Uh, sad.
0: Yeah. So that's yeah, that's one of the reasons he left. That was happening in the 90s. And it left a lot of bitterness with the readers as well. It did. For the sake of younger readers or those who aren't as familiar with the history when we're talking about the 90s here, in the 90s, we had comics transitioned from a reader's market to a speculator's market. So a lot of people were buying issues, thinking that if they treat them, they could sell them 30 or 40 years down the road and retire. Because this Mm -hmm. is when the comics from the 30s really started selling for huge price tags. They didn't realize... That the main reasons the comics from the 30s and 40s were selling with huge price tags were because, A, they were printed on paper that was expected to deteriorate in 50 years. So very few of them even existed anymore. If they were kept, even if they were kept in great condition, they probably fell apart. And B, during World War II, most comics ended in the back saying, do your part to support the war effort. Once you've read this comic, go recycle it. Mm-hmm. So it's just straight up supply and demand. There's next to no supply of Golden Age comics which is what was driving the prices up on your Action Comics number one and your Detective 27s and these landmark issues. In the 90s, they were investing in this, and at least at Marvel, marketing was allowed to dictate to editorial what would happen. We'll get into that more when we get to the Clone Saga, which is probably the (laughs) pinnacle example of that.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) But they were in control. So you know if they, they said, oh, some major event is happening, introduction of a new character, death of a character, they could drive the speculator market up. They'd release them with six or seven different covers, some of which were made of various types of foil, you know, chromium <laughs> covers and whatnot to get people to get out there, buy six different copies to seal in bags and maybe one copy to read. <sighs> and by the end of the decade, the people who were buying comics, not as readers, but as investors who were totally skewing the sales numbers and causing these poor story decisions. Cause it was good business at the time because they sold to these speculators. When they realized that these things they were investing in weren't valuable because, you know, comic characters, when they die, they don't stay dead. They've got this real knack for getting better. Right. I mean, Superman didn't stay dead. Wolverine regrew himself from a single cell of blood, admittedly with the help help of the beast. But, (sighs) you know, he cranked up the healing factor on that one red blood Mm -hmm. cell and grew back Wolverine. These guys don't stay dead. And the new characters don't necessarily catch on with new readers hmm So these things that they were spending hundreds of dollars for the month they came out were selling for 10, and the value was going down because the important stories that the collectors are willing to pay more for are the ones that get referenced down the road. hmm And that just wasn't – stories weren't getting referenced three or four months down the road because, well, the next thing was even bigger and made the characters forget about everything else because it was that much more monumental. <sighs> so it didn't matter to readers. So the investment values kept going down. And the speculators walked from the market. And at that time, marketing had catered so much to the speculators and lost so many of the readers that they almost drove the industry into bankruptcy. Cause that's the really the only readers that a lot of the marketing people cared about. When the speculators walked, so many things folded. I mean, Marvel once they, one of Marvel's instances at San Diego Comic Con just before they filed for bankruptcy, their presentation was two interns with a jiffy marker and a fold out cardboard. <gasps> That's all they had. When they changed hands after Ron Perlman lost control of the company, after overinflating it on paper and selling it, just as he'd done with Revlon and two or three other companies <sighs> in the past, right, the people who stepped in and started going through the offices found, well, for example, 11 years worth of inventory stories for Punisher and Punisher War Journal. <sighs> so over 250 single-issue stories they could just drop in and publish at any time. And a lot of those are never going to see the light of day now because they were kind of tied to the era.
1: hmm oh,
0: And it was dear. just excessive spending, almost no investments. It was just – the industry as a whole was fairly poorly run. DC mm-hmm. weathered the storm better than Marvel did, partly because it was already owned by Warner Brothers and Marvel was still an independent entity. Um, in fact, Marvel ended up getting bought out by Toy Biz. So at the time, Toy Biz was the toy manufacturer that had the Marvel Comics license. So they were putting out the Marvel toys. It was run by a gentleman named Aria, or Avia Rad. And Avia Rad was looking at the books. He realized that the numbers weren't adding up because he was that good of a businessman. He also realized if the if Marvel goes down, the license that's keeping his business afloat goes down too. So he ended up being the guy who managed to get the funding and the leverage to buy Marvel and bring them out of bankruptcy. And when he stepped in as owner, he did two things. Number one, he told Marketing that they were no longer allowed to t- dictate things to Editorial. It was now Editorial's job to come up with the stories and Marketing to figure out how they could just sell the stories, thinking if Editorial had full control over the stories, well, the stories will be good enough that Marketing will know how to sell them. And that was response to reader feedback. And he just made that mandate and then had almost no personal involvement in the stories themselves. He turned around from there and went straight to Hollywood and worked to get these characters on screen. And Avi was the single greatest push that brought Blade to the screen with Universal, or Alliance, I believe that was. He brought X-Men to Fox and convinced them it was a worthwhile investment, and he's the one that convinced Columbia Tristar to buy Spider-Man. The only reason that people weren't buying Captain America, Thor, and Iron Man at that time is because they were just coming off Batman and Robin. Comic book movies were not a guaranteed hit, and aviarad saw the potential of the Avengers films and refused to sell those characters one at a time, you had to buy all three. So when Marvel finally started doing their own, that's why they were still available because the price tag was too high because it was bundle or nothing. <sighs> wow. All coming from this comic here. <laughs> the start of it. Yeah. It, it's one of the early signposts where in retrospect, you could see what's coming. Yeah. Reading it in the day. I I don't know if you'd see the massive change in the industry coming from this, but I think you could see uh, this is not a strong storyteller. No. Right. Not in terms of plotting and outlining. As we said, he, you give him a script with a good outline and, he will lay out the heck out
1: of it. Yeah. The big question I would have is, why is this comic on the top 75? What made people want to vote for this? Surely not a nostalgia for this actual comic, more of a nostalgia for the character of Deadpool. That's
0: my suspicion. Unless there's some diehard Gideon and Domino fans out there that I <laughs> haven't run into.
1: <laughs> yes, They they must have a podcast somewhere. Anybody wants to start the Gideon or Domino podcast, Stay clear, please. Yeah. Yeah, just <laughs> go, go nuts, but I won't be listening. <sighs> I mean, one of my favorite comics from this year and from this month was Excalibur, who Alan Davis was on his second run of. And that was far, far better as an artist-writer coming up with that, that story. I remember being amazed about the twists and then the reference back to the own his own storyline and just such a well-written, crafted material. Then we get this.
0: Yeah. Alan Davis is one of the few who can write and draw a
1: comic and mm-hmm. produce some really excellent material. Yet he doesn't have the ego that he has to write and draw his own comics.
0: Yep. He'd be quite happy to, happy to do just one or the other. Yep. So, mm-hmm. yeah, he he seems to thrive on collaboration. Whereas Rob Liefeld, I've heard him on Word Balloon. He seems to have matured and just mm-hmm. become an easier individual to work with. You can look at his more recent art compared to this And see some improvements. As as Mark was talking about earlier, sometimes he's got the wrong, you know, and here he'd have the wrong characters breaking panel. It's a background character instead of foreground or so forth. You don't see a lot of that in his Deathstroke run with the new Mm -hmm. 52, right? The characters still overflow the gutters and break out of the panels, but it's a more appropriate choice of character. That's his line work and the way he draws his figures. That's the style he enjoys. That's the style he has chosen. That's the style that he's still working with. And that's the style that has won him some devoted fans. Mm-hmm. so it's I, I won't fault the guy for continuing to draw his comics his way mm-hmm. Right? if he's got enough fans that it's that a worthwhile business decision for companies to keep putting him on books bully for him way to go congratulations all right so we should probably give at least some plot synopsis
1: okay i'll take that okay okay From the very beginning, in a secluded mountain chalet in Colorado, the mysterious Gideon stands ready for an attack. This is his daily workout fighting against robots, during which he dictates a memo uh, to uh, let the manufacturer of the robots know how they could build them better. He dispatches the robots with unclear powers. His PA reminds him of his appointments that day, and at the mention of the Costa Stock Inquiry, he asks if they have someone in place. The PA says Eve is in place, and Gideon tells him to proceed with the plan. Meanwhile, in the secluded danger room, the new mutant's mysterious leader, Cable, and the young mutant Cannonball, Sam Gerfu, are training. Cable calls out attack sequence SG-253, but Sam easily manoeuvres his blasting power to avoid the danger. Then Cable blasts his hand at Cannonball, which confuses us all, and Sam cannot keep his noise level of the blast down, when he is distracted. Cable then talks about training the team, and Sam points out that there isn't much of a team left. Warlock was killed in Genosha, Wolfsbane is still in Genosha, and Sam bemoans the loss of his family. Cable describes life as war, and Sam should accept that as fact. At DaCosta International, Eve gives Mr Costa some coffee, and he dies after sipping it. Meanwhile, Boom Boom listens to Richter plan to rescue Wolfsbane from Genosha, But Boom Boom decides to take a slide on that plan with some nice youth talk there. Richter decides to go away anyway uh, to rescue Wolfsbane. Cable is in the library when he is attacked by the mysterious man named Deadpool. Deadpool has been paid by Mr. Tolliver to kill Cable. And while Cable is talking at gunpoint, Cannonball managed to quieten his force blast long enough to get a sneak attack on Deadpool. Deadpool then shoots a neural disruptor net and stops cannonball, then Cable smacks Deadpool around a bit. After Deadpool knifes Cable in the leg, the other new mutants join the fight, kind of. Deadpool shoots string from his glove at Richter to stop his vibratory powers, and Sunspot tries to announce his plans to attack until three thunks hit Deadpool. A mysterious woman known to Cable stopped Deadpool with three knives. Her name is Domino. Sam lies that they were doing fine before Domino came in, and Cable decides to send Deadpool back to Tolliver, who doesn't take kindly to failures. The New Mutants uh, see a major plot point happen when Cable smiles. That night, Cable and Domino review the unavailable New Mutants. Rusty Collins and Skids, they're both with the Mutant Liberation Front. Karma? Well, she's not a team player. Magma? She's a Nova Roma in a roman jungle civilization. oh that was hard to say A mirage well she's a valkyrie in asgard cable says that he's taking steps to get more team members meanwhile richter leaves the school in the middle of the night leaving boom boom a note about wanting to live happily ever after with wolfsbane meanwhile sunspot is woken by gideon remember him in a dubious outfit to tell sunspot his dad is dead sunspot is shocked to be continued. Yep, that's that's the plot. And as someone who read... <laughs> I've read the
0: Claremont run of New Mutants. Mm-hmm. And then I've read nothing between that and this. That would be
1: a bit of jarring.
0: Yeah, it, the book has taken on a very different style. And the death of de Costa felt like a letdown. Because we've known that Sunspot's father was a jerk from day one. Yes. And he had been enough of a jerk and a significant enough... Force during Claremont's New Mutants run that I felt, you know, his ends, should, that this fell flat. He deserved uh, a bigger ending than have some poison
1: coffee. Bye. <laughs> have some poison coffee in a cup you can't set down, so you have to actually hold it and drink it. And it wasn't even, you know, there's no even reason why on the page why. And then to have, uh, to have Gideon turn up in the middle of the night in the school to a half-naked boy while Gideon looks as if he's in his dressing gown. It's just creepily weird. And uh, it's as if he didn't know how to stop the issue, how to finish the issue, to bring about that dramatic resonance into uh, Sunspot's life. The other things also are, you know, it might as well not be a New Mutants comic, because the only New Mutant that actually has much to do is Sam, Cannonball. The rest of them just... The only reason Richter has anything to talk about is because he's being got rid of. In the next issue, Sunspot will be got rid of, so it'll just leave two New Mutants left and only one of the originals.
0: Yep, in all their goggled glory. Yes. <laughs> That's very different character designs from the, the team I was familiar with. This
1: is Yeah, th- there was definitely a shift between the Claremont and the Simonson era. Uh, I remember thinking the Simonson era was fantastic, and then I read the Claremont era, that was brilliant. And there was such a letdown to go back to the Simonson uh, era. But I read this before I read any uh, Claremont. And it's just so different. So a million miles away. The school doesn't exist anymore. It's just um, it was destroyed during the ooh, Inferno that far back. And they're all living underground like Wombles. If you know what a Womble is. No. Okay. right? Okay. That's Okay. The people in Britain will know exactly what a womble is. Uh the underground dwelling beasts that live under Wimbledon Common and clean away all the rubbish. Okay. Comes comes from my childhood. Alright. One of those things I'm sorry I brought up now. <laughs> Oops. Oh. Um yeah, and even the Deadpool fight, where it's a lot of Yeah, you know, Deadpool's got these two swords. Does he ever bring them out? No. He brings out a gun at one point, but then he decides to use a knife. And then he's the new mutants turn up and before they can actually do anything, the fight's over. So it's a bit of an anticlimax for the new mutants. And you can see the fact that uh, Liefeld is trying to clear the board for his new team. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be quite purposeful because the next issue, three new characters come in again. Yeah. So it's quite heavy on the bringing in people. And we don't even know who Mr. Tolliver is. He en- I think he ended up being Cable's son. Yeah, he is. spoilers. Sorry. Yeah,
0: I I googled him and he has a Dayspring. So and you know, we've eventually learned. I don't know how much of Cable's name was known at this point, but he ends up being a Nathaniel Christopher Dayspring Ascani San Summers. Mm-hmm. And, oh there's a Charles in there too. Nathaniel Christopher Charles Dayspring spring Ascani San Summers.
1: Yeah. I don't think there was much known at this exact point. It was uh, a few a year or so later. They'd find out, because I remember the annuals uh, that connected the X-books and I think the Fantastic Four at that time, there was a wee bit of talk about who Cable would be in the future, and they got it wrong. Yeah, this, as
0: we said, this was covered in February 1991, and I distinctly remember um, reading X-Factor 65 to 68 and actually putting the pieces together to figure Mm -hmm. out that, that Cable was Nathaniel. The first issue of that story arc was cover dated April 1991. So this issue was two months before that began. And I know when that finished four months later, they still hadn't revealed explicitly that Cable was Nathaniel Summers. That's just, I put it together because I read that story arc from X-Factor over and over. And the artwork was clear enough to match up that every place Nathaniel Summers was affected by the Technovirus corresponded to where Cable's cybernetic implants were. Mm-hmm. So his eye, his arm, all of that was just a point for point match for this mysterious guy who'd come from the future looking for Cyclops. So I was able to put it together based on a combination of the art and the information about Cable that I had from the Marvel Comics trading cards because I wasn't actually reading the book at the time.
1: <laughs> the trading cards. Brilliant. That's a lot of Columbo you must have watched as a young man. All 69 episodes. Fantastic.
0: Actually, they weren't up to 69 then because the last one came out in 2003. But Yeah. <laughs>
1: I'm scared to mention anything in case you know all about it now.
0: Well, it's, Columbo was running twice a week on a when I grew up and <laughs> never missed it in the summers and had a habit of taping it during the
1: school year. Oh, fantastic. There was also the thing, those annuals I was talking about, which was the days of future present. Cable and Christopher met the baby and Cable met and there was no big explosion, which we know from Doctor Who happens when two a uh, single person inhabits two spaces in the same time.
0: Yeah, was it the <laughs> the Liedenbach effect? What was it? Yes. I believe it was first named in the Peter Davison era, wasn't it? Or was it Yes, Tom
1: with the, the Brigadier. Yeah. And I've got that on my shelf somewhere. Oh, that'll be me watching that late into the night.
0: Yeah, uh, on Undead. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yep, from the Black Guardian trilogy. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a... Uh, if the episode is known to exist, I own it. <laughs> So I'm missing 90-some, one of which that annoys is me because right. one of them will never be recovered, sadly. But, yeah. Is it just one, though? There are 97 missing episodes, mm-hmm. 96 of which were transferred to film for overseas sales, so there's a chance of recovery of those. Right. But the one-shot Christmas episode that was Dalek-centric in the middle of the Daleks Master Plan, the only episode that did not have the Doctor, and the only episode of the classic series that mentioned Christmas, was never transferred to film for overseas sales, so that one will, can never be recovered. Boom. That one is just gone. It's the best we can hope for. For that is an animated version because all the audio tracks exist because that was not reusable material, so the BBC didn't destroy it. I always thought it would be great if they just
1: animated those missing ones.
0: Yeah, they've done it a few times, at least region. Yeah, one, yeah they or, have. Yep, yeah, region one yep. at least as we've been getting them. So
1: mm-hmm. anyway,
0: so uh, one of the other things we like to cover in this podcast is examining deeper meanings. Right? Is <laughs> is there any message we can pull out of this? You know, stolen from the Mission Log podcast, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Are there any messages, morals, or meanings that are conveyed by this issue?
1: If if you run a school, lock the doors. Really? Come on. All three of these new characters find their way in, no problem at all. In the olden days of the X-Men, there'd be guns popping up from the lawn. Uh, Yeah, definitely lock your doors.
0: Deadpool did blow things up to get in. Domino was invited, so Cable might have given her the information he needs. And Sunspot says... How'd you get by the security? To which Gideon says, Well, never mind. Yes. That's not important. A, a really good
1: uh writing technique.
0: Yeah, it's uh so yeah. you know, most of the time I can pull out some sort of message or meaning that they, they were trying to convey. The only real message I'm getting off this page is a message from Rob Leinfeld saying, wait till you see how cool this book is going to be. <laughs> He's introducing so many new elements without really dealing with them and packing them using action and trying to develop characters in action moments. But I think there might be two pages where there aren't fights going on in this. One of which, when they're sitting there going through the character Doss, has to figure out who they're going to include in their next fight. And one of which is Gideon saying, your dad's dead, but leaving <laughs> out the I had him killed part. <laughs> it's it's a lot of groundwork, but there's so much thrown at you so quickly in such a shallow fashion mm-hmm. that had I read this on the stands at the time, I know I would not have been compelled to get the next issue. There were mo- much more compelling buys on the m- on the market at that time.
1: Yeah, I mean even Richter's note to Boom Boom, off to see of re- if ran and live happily ever after. Wish me luck. I'm going to need it, Loverick. That just was not the character I had got to know from uh, the X X Factor uh, series. I just so so many offbeats, so many hit, not hitting the right mark with yeah. the characters that we already knew. But then again, he's bringing in his own characters; he doesn't need them off the go.
0: Yeah, it's about clearing the decks for the new era, which we are going to see in what would have been issue one hundred and one with
1: X Force. Yes, so oh, it and it didn't get much better. Uh, I I did a big clear out of my comics. We I have my comics up in the roof space. And we had to get some work done on there, so I got rid of half my comics. That was one of the easy choices to make, Um, getting rid of the early X-Factor. Because there was not much of a story. X-Factor or X-Force? Oh, sorry, X-Force. I get my X's mixed up. Oh, dear me. Uh, And it was later on that I got back to uh, X-Force, because it it was better then. It was more of a direction to it. It just seemed to be, we've got guns, we'll use them. That's our motive. Where the original motive for the new mutants was we want to educate mutants. We're a school. Let's do some schooling. Yeah, it was
0: New Mutants. Those those that early Claremont run mm. was, I think, the first time in X-Book history, to me, at least at one point I started reading X-Men in chronological order. I got up to well, I'm up to about eighty-nine in that read through and I've got I don't have any of the Claremont issues or the New Mutants issues after Claremont. Mm-hmm. But the start of that was the first time ever Xavier's school actually felt like a school.
1: Yeah, even the original X-Men, they were quite old by the time we got to them. So, the, you know, they were driving cars and things like that. Yeah. Uh, so to bring in a new bunch of mutants at the time, that that was a good call.
0: Yeah, it is. It is it's, I, I get the idea for having a school. It's a place to have these young characters congregate together. You could bring random characters together and have all sorts of conflicts because it's... Mm-hmm. As, you know, you're pulling them together like you pulled together workplace comedy. You're going to have a mix of personality types. Yeah. Right? It's not, here's a bunch of friends who are choosing to be together. It's, here's a bunch of people who have to be together. <laughs> so it, it does leave a lot of room for variety in your cast, which is mm-hmm. a great recipe for drama. And yeah, it, it's a nice setup. But I mean, as a teacher myself, I love that little, I think it's a six-page vignette during the X-Men Divided We Stand event. Where one of the mutants gets transferred out of Xavier's school because the parents are concerned about the risks after sentinel attacks and whatnot. And they put him in a mainstream school and this kid's sitting in the classroom going, man, I'm like a year and a half behind in math. I am two years behind <laughs> in language arts. I am way behind in history. <laughs> Fizzed, I'm kicking butt. They don't have a self defense part, but I'm doing. <laughs> well, that's what he said. Like, you know, self defense is really the only thing he learned clearly because yeah. it's his mutant power was just some sort of you know, cosmetic thing. I forget, Mm -hmm. like horns or something along those lines. But he's out there going, man, the main curriculum, it sucks in that school.
1: (laughs) (laughs) True. I suppose they were spoiled with Kitty Pride being a genius. Yeah. Mm.
0: But at any rate, I think that about wraps up what we have to say about this one. I think it does. We've alluded to, you know, why we think it landed at this point on the tournament.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And it's, I think it's on... It made the list of 75 because Deadpool.
1: Yes, the only reason it could have. Bottom of the list because Liefeld. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think he was voting for it so many times? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but well, Someone was. In any event, once again, Mark, thanks for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Really good talking about comics. As always. And for the listeners at home,
0: uh, if you want to read along with us so you're ready for next week, Next week, we will be dealing with Marvel 2-in-1 Annual Number 7, which has been reprinted exactly once in Essential Marvel 2-in-1 Volume 4, which is itself out of print. So good luck on that one. <laughs> but I did manage to grab it because there was a time when if it was an Essential, I was buying it because in the, the cost per issue, you just couldn't beat them. No. So, yeah, but join us for that. And you can rate the show on iTunes or Stitcher. You can find it on Bureau 42 along with our other podcasts, including the Bureau 42 Master Audio Feed, which has every episode of this plus all the other podcasts that come out through Bureau 42. And Mark, would you like to remind the listeners where they could find your podcasts?
1: If you go to marksmesspodcast.blogspot.co.uk, you can find links to all my podcasts, the Mark's Mess Evolutionary War, Mark's Mess Atlantis Attacks, and if you're into a bit of World War One history, the John Adams Letters from the Front, and also you can find all those podcasts on iTunes.
0: All right. So I look forward to talking to you again in the future and to the guests we have next week and to the listeners at home, thank you for listening.
1: Okay, bye-bye.
0: Bye.